0: Three-point range, back with you after a, a minute to gather ourselves. Um, this is Mike Berardino, joined as always by the scout, Kimball Crosley, who I believe is in Charlotte tonight. Maybe that's classified information, but he's in Charlotte, and we have this the uh, professor who will always lead off uh, going forward. We're not messing with the lineup anymore, I don't <laughs> think, and that's Tim Crothers. What's
1: up? Hello, boys. Uh, we have some some of our old special favorite topics uh, that we like to bring up every once in a while on on three point range and and uh, there I don't know why it, we always have to have Armageddon for something to actually change in sports, but but uh, we had our own sort of mini Armageddon on Sunday night uh, with in the Phillies uh, Brewers game when uh, when. Kyle Schwerber went ballistic over uh, what had been a series of pretty terrible uh, ball strike calls by the inimitable Angel Hernandez. Um, I don't I don't pretend to know the the long and deep history of Angel Hernandez's ball strike calls, but I I do. It does seem that this is not the first time that this this has occurred. Uh, I did do a, a minimum of research here. Uh, and with help with the help of the Athletic, I will certainly cite my sources here. Um, the uh, the ball strike breakdown for uh, for Angel Hernandez in that in that particular game was um, he missed five out of the eighty one called ball strike call I mean called balls that were actually two strikes so ninety four percent that's not too bad although it is below below the average 97%. Um but really the the one, the one that is that is almost comically bad is that 11 of the 48 called strikes that Angel Hernandez called strikes were true balls. 11. 11 out of 48. That's 77% of the time he he got guys his, his called strike correct. Uh, the the average is eighty eight percent, and it brings us back to as I suggested one of one of my particular favorite just gripes about about baseball, and I just I just don't get it. I mean I've heard I've heard in the in the aftermath people saying, well I mean come on let's not jump on this guy. It's pretty hard to, it's pretty hard to call a a, a strike ball when somebody's throwing ninety five and catcher's moving around and blah, blah, blah. And, I'm like, yeah, and, and, and truth is, I agree. It is hard to call a balls, balls and strikes. There's no doubt. The The umpire doesn't get to see that big box up there that we get to see. But those of us who get to see it and realize how many times not only Angel Hernandez, but all these other umpires are missing ball and strike calls, including some particularly critical times, if, as, just as Kyle Schwarber, it just brings back this idea that why, oh why, since it seems that, and maybe Kimball can confirm just how uh, developed the the uh, electronic ball strike call is at this point. I, I know he's told me just the other day that uh, that he's seen a lot of a lot of the the new technology started start to come into baseball and how well it works, including the pitch clock, et cetera. Uh, I think in this case, uh, in the minor leagues, this has been tested and found to be relatively. Um, foolproof and it just gets back to this idea of why oh why oh why are we settling for, the, for this like okay yeah it's we get it right most of the time or at least 77 percent of the time we get it right i am just i am just incredulous that we don't say okay i mean i understand there are some there is some need to have umpires on the field i'm not saying we need to eliminate umpires completely but for something as, as black and white as the, as the ball strike call has become, I can only hope that, that a moment like this, like, like the Kyle Schwarber meltdown, is finally going to get people to start to, to think about this idea of, let's try this out in the majors. Let's see if this can work. I don't care. You can keep your umpire behind the plate if you want, who's actually making the call Based on what the electronics are telling him, but uh, but please do not subject me to having to watch these games where I just think so often and at such critical times games are being decided by an umpire missing a ball strike call. Uh, I know we've 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 plowed this ground before. I I don't feel like a you know I feel like I'm just kind of hammering it home again. But it but I think it's I think, I think it, it's become a, it's come to a point now where when you see a moment like that, you think the game was changed by by that call. And it's and it's so needless that it just doesn't make sense to me anymore. Kimball, can you confirm? Yeah, no, that, that this is the this is the case.
2: I, I definitely have some things I can say here and some things mm-hmm. I, I probably shouldn't say, but there's there's things I, I feel comfortable saying. And, and one is, um, you know, angel hernandez is the only umpire i've seen uh that i can remember really uh playing to the crowd i was i remember last year seeing him in a series and you know fans were sort of talking to him before after the game and and he was like playing to it you know and obviously most players and um umpires learn just ignore it but he was like turning around and waving and blowing kisses and I just thought, come on, you can't, you can't do that the umpire. Um, so what know. about
0: Joe West? You didn't think Joe West well, no, was the I showman? I think they're,
2: showmen. they're yeah. showmen, but they're not doing that to the crowd. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and I think that's a different thing. Um, and, uh, and I will say that uh, it was interesting because it's funny you mentioned that today because uh, I was at a day game in Charlotte and uh, I happened to be seeing – a, a, a loyal listener came in and sat next to me for a while, <laughs> one of our few loyal listeners. And he um we're just talking and at some point he mentioned that this is a game with the automatic umpire. And it was probably the third, fourth, fifth inning. And I didn't know that. Like wow. because it was seamless. It was seamless, you know. And and the one thing I thought is, oh, I guess I haven't been sitting here worried about balls and strikes. I haven't thought, oh, that's awful, you know, as as you know, everyone that sits behind on plate does now and then, and just go, oh, that's a bad call. But I thought, no, there were a lot of borderline pitches, but there weren't things I could like really take exception to. And that happens. And it, it's it it goes to Tim's point, because, I, and I actually, I'm in favor of the um, automatic umpire. And just as Tim said, because it's not that these guys aren't really good at it. They're amazing at calling balls and strikes. The fact that they could be 95% correct is remarkable when you see replays that show the ball catching you know just a fraction of the zone or and you're just like wow or or wh- how easily they they call a ball when it just misses and they're right so often but again what I've often said is the the ball the battle for the strike zone is the key to the game and people will obsess about a, a line drive or a ground ball down the baseline that fair or foul and that's a play but the, the ball and strike zone, while they seem insignificant, are actually more significant. You know, the, especially with repetition. You know, as Tim said, if you miss eleven calls, well, that's eleven balls down the line in a way. You know, because they they like the the battle for that count is so huge, and I think it's become even bigger um, because we the 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 base on balls. You know, part of the whole advance in analytics people have realized how valuable the base on balls is and it's led to a lot of things in baseball now and, and the value of the walk. And, um, and so I think hitters are even more selective and that old, it's too close to take mentality went out the window a long time ago. So when a batter takes a ball off the plate, you know, like Schwar- Schwarber did and he's called out, we're not saying, hey, you should have swung, it was too close. No, it's like we know that you can't afford to enlarge in that zone on a consistent basis you can't afford to swing at that too close to to take um pitch anymore uh the way the game is and so it's it's vital and i think you know you you keep the umpire behind home plate as it was today and he's calling them and and no one would even notice and it speeds up the game because players aren't like griping and bitching because it's like who are they could talk to you know <laughs> you're not going to talk to the the machine um and the one thing that is a possible drawback, which I have not seen yet, is people think that you could throw some of our old wiffle ball pitches <laughs> that that are manipulate the zone a little bit and that aren't really a hittable pitch, but somehow end up in there. But I haven't seen that yet. And I'm not even sure that's possible, or if we can't, you know, counter that with a zone, an electronic zone that somehow eliminates that, or with the umpire saying, No, that's when I'm gonna, you know, like Mark Debbie's old. You know, uh, grass hugger. He threw from a submarine position where it would hug the grass by your feet, so where you couldn't hit it, and then it would rise up and hit the can, or roll whiffle ball strike zone. But of course, we, we're not using a can as the auto ump. In uh, if we were to use it, it would it would it would actually be right at your feet and not two feet behind.
0: I I don't know if you can answer this, but maybe in general, do teams now do scouts now have to? make a note of whether it was an electronic strike zone as they're watching a minor league game or not. I mean, could that factor in even in terms of evaluation? Cause with TrackMan you can go back and, and see if that pitcher was better than his result might've or should have been better than the result was.
2: No, that, that hasn't happened as far as I know, not with us and with the Padres. Um, well, well,
0: add that box. You need to, you need to have
2: that. <laughs> no, the box that I find interesting, if they do come up with the auto zone, is the reputation box, where that guy that, you know, everyone knows, like, well, and, you know, this is where umpires are human, and they look at stats, and they know, you know, this player has a good eye. He's walked more than he struck out. He's got a lot of walks this year. And then we all see the game, and it's like, that guy seems to get more borderline calls, and that just feeds into itself. I'm fascinated to see if, if some of those guys that, that seem to uh, have a great uh, handle of the zone, actually, if the auto uh, ump comes into play, all of a sudden it's like, not so much. That could be interesting. And that yeah. could come into scouting reports.
1: Totally agree. I mean, I, it actually affects the game in that way because don't you think that guys who get reputations for having a great eye get calls that they shouldn't get?
2: Yeah, and, no question. And the whole and, idea of the, vice rookie, versa. Better, the yeah. rookie better watch out because he doesn't have a reputation yet
1: right I mean exactly that that affects the game too I mean I think pitchers pitch to that and you take you, you take that completely out of the out of the equation. I mean it's another one of those sort of human things we, we got to take the human out of out of umpiring I mean that's basically this idea that you know, this antiquated idea that well you know the hum, humans make mistakes but that's all part of the game. No we don't have to have that as part of the game. It's, it's silly to have that as part of the game, just, just so we can maintain the human umpires. I mean, yes, there are, there are calls on the field that I think we can all agree that need to be made by, by humans, but, but the balls and strikes, I, don't, I just don't see it.
2: Well, for example, we've often heard like, well, this umpire, that's his zone. That's his unique zone. And the players know that he's, he's a pitcher's umpire. He's a hitter's umpire. Well, we don't do that in other areas of sport. We don't say like, like oh, that's his base. He just umps with a larger base and so <laughs> a couple of inches away he gives it to you cuz he's a big he's a big base hump. Uh-huh. You know, he's a, he's a he's a narrow foul territory hump. He's a big, you know, fair territory hump. I mean, we don't have that.
1: Right. The zone is the zone.
2: Right. I will say that
0: uh and I don't delve into this part of things, but uh you know, there there's a lot of clicks to be had on uh online blogs, etc. when it's, when people who cover the NBA Know who's who the officiating crew is. For some reason, gamblers are very interested in what crews will be there in
2: terms I of knew a we were going
1: whistle, quick <laughs> <laughs> or yep.
0: slow whistle. So uh, you know, it's, it, there's certainly Steve Javi had a quick whistle on the tee. He was he was the quickest way to get a technical with Steve Javy having your game. But I just want to point out, and I want to double check this because I was I was vaguely remembering this, and it has been adjudicated. I I'm I am just shocked that Angel Hernandez lost his lawsuit. I'm not shocked he lost, but he lost a race discrimination lawsuit. It was decided in March of 2021. And more than a year later, after alleging that baseball had uh held him out and he had Joe Torrey, who's working for Major League Baseball, had a had animus against him going back to the way he handled his his teams with the Yankees and the Dodgers. Uh and of course uh, Angel Hernandez alleging in the lawsuit that this was uh, unfair, that he had not been assigned to a World Series since 2005, and it sounds like he shouldn't be allowed to to handle a, a Little League game, but um, he lost that, and so I don't know. I don't know uh, if Richie Phillips' ghost is still floating around or what, but why can't they just get rid of this guy because there's no pending litigation, and, and the record is the record, and He's horrible. Everybody. I mean, he's just been a punchline for essentially the last couple decades. And there are others who are bad. But as Kimball points out, this guy seems to embrace it, play to it, try to. Perhaps he's you know doing signings. I did see him walking into the twenty seventeen All Star game. He was wearing a uh, basically a Hannibal Lecter uh, hat, a little Panama hat, and and uh, was stopping to sign autographs on his way in and. People were kind of booing and hissing, but they also because he they recognized him. They wanted his autograph, and it's not healthy. That's just not a healthy thing. But uh, he's not alone. He's not the the only horrible one. And I, I'll probably be the last one to come around to the full robot umpire thing. But you guys have given me something to think about, and you do want to ultimately. What if it helped your gambling,
2: right? Mike? What if you it helped your gambling? It
0: right. <laughs> well, I don't miss. It. Maybe that's why you're
2: against day. it because it hurts only, your gambling. You only bet.
0: Future. Only perhaps futures, just to give us a little something to talk about. No, you can't. You can't delve into that game by game on baseball. Um, well, that's point number one. Uh, let's go now right back to the scout for point number two. And I we've already talked about this sport a little bit, but uh, what do you have for us?
2: Well, let's talk about another lawsuit, and this lawsuit is fascinating because Jerry West, um, the basketball legend is suing hbo for his portrayal uh in this series called winning time about the lakers and magic johnson's lakers that and that dynasty um uh that came about when magic joined the team and all the things happened with their coaches and uh you know west and everybody else and and he's suing for defamation uh for his the way he's being portrayed in the show and I you know I'm kind of really rooting for him here because you know Mike, you've kind of touched on this when you've talked about other uh movies, sports movies. I don't think it was the one about the donkey kicking field goals.
0: <laughs> it was when we talked but, about uh Al Davis, you know, and, I know the
2: voice exactly yeah, exactly. yeah. Uh-huh. right so so you know what's happened here for, uh Pete Rozelle. Is, yeah that that if you've watched any of that series and and I have watched some of it because i I was a big fan of those Lakers. Um, it's really a, a fun way to reminisce. And and then you're also, you know, if you're my age, you're trying to piece together what you do remember and like, oh yeah, I guess that is how it went down. But the dang problem with the show is, and their defense in the lawsuit is that they, you know, put up a disclaimer that, you know, some of this is fictionalized and not everything is true, but it's trying to be so accurate with the facts in some ways that there's no way to tell. And I was, you know, one night I was sitting there on, internet trying to break it down and see what was true and what wasn't what was my memory was right or wrong. And, and it's absurd. You can't do this. You can't like, try and be so factual, but then take such liberties. And I reached out (laughs) to, to uh, another, maybe semi loyal listener, but our our old friend from college, Mike Shore, Mike Showtime Shore. (laughs) and and he was around those lakers cuz he was working on a show in la at the time and he went to the forum all the time and i reached out to him and was like you know help me out like is jerry west right is is his portrayal absolutely wrong because in the show he's portrayed as this bombastic loud alcoholic rageaholic and and it it never it didn't seem right but i was never around the man i just observed him from afar like a lot of us did for well, sixty years, I guess, and and it seemed wrong. And yeah, he confirmed that that's wrong, as most people have done that have have defended this lawsuit. You know, defend Jerry West and saying he's right to do this. And you know, it, it's clear he was he, he was a sour puss. He was an unhappy guy. Um, I guess the the word that Mike used, or the phrase he used, was he's an internal sufferer. And to me, it's like, well why don't we just portray him like that? Like, that's just as interesting that this, he was a man that admitted he was unhappy like a lot of people that have excelled in life. You know, it's they're driven so hard, they're never satisfied. And that's Jerry West. That's one of the reasons that made him a great player. And I thought he was a good coach actually before he gave that up and and general manager. And he still is an executive in basketball today because he's so driven because he he he, you know, he just wants to succeed so much and he's so miserable. But he's not throwing things as, as, you know, as he's um, portrayed in this show. And it just makes it hard to, like, enjoy the show on a level because you're always wondering, well, wait, do I believe that? Do I not believe that? And, for example, just why they unnecessarily did this is one of the things I went to look up is they had the Lakers losing to, you know, Detroit and Indiana on on a, a road trip, getting blown out by both teams that were bad at the time but then going into the garden and beating the Celtics. And it's like, well, it was so specific. They put up the scores and they talked about the games, but then you go and look it up. And it's like, it didn't go down like that. I mean, they played the Pacers at one time and they played the Pistons and they played the Celtics, but that sequence didn't happen. And you're like, why? Why was it necessary to portray it that way? You could have, you know, they, they struggled at other times that year. All you had to show is that they were struggling and the coaches, the new coaches, Paul Westhead, and Pat Riley were not quite getting through the team yet after um, Jack McKinney, the head coach, got injured in a bike accident. So why do you have to like make up certain facts and then you know have us trust others? And so I am rooting for West to have some success in the lawsuit to clean this up because you can you can dramatize things, but be honest and say, look, we conflated this, we did this, we did that, you know, and this this is true and this isn't. But but with a show like this, you just can't mess with the facts like that, especially when we're talking about people and portraying them. And if you look at the lawsuit, one last thing is, you know, there were people, there was a consultant that dropped off the show because said you're portraying him wrong. And and he was not portrayed like this in the book that this series is based on. And so they knew it. So they think West has a chance to win this lawsuit because with defamation, they knowingly portrayed him falsely. They didn't just accidentally do so. They knowingly did so. Thoughts, boys, you journalism boys? Professor?
1: Well, I, I guess first of all, I think this is a little known fact, but if, if you actually look at, the, look at the logo, the NBA logo, you see uh, Jerry West dribbling <laughs> a ball with his left hand. What you don't see is his right hand in the logo. If you look at the logo, you can't see it's, it's whited out. There's actually a whiskey bottle yeah. Mostly finished whiskey bottle <laughs> oh. in that in that hand in that right hand you just can't see it. You can see us now. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. No. I, I all, all I can speak to ha- having been involved in the in the making sort of involved in the making of a of a movie. Uh, I can tell you that um, that uh, there is a constant <laughs> there's a constant battle between uh, the people who want want this the this movie to be successful and make a lot of money and the people who want the movie to be actually true to life and uh there were many times i i can tell you during the the filming of the queen of codway where there were the the good folks um who were in charge of the movie tried to take liberties and at one point um i was told that uh that that the my my coach the coach in, in the book Robert Katende, um, was a creative consultant on the movie and there were several times in which he threatened to walk off the set and and quit as the creative consultant if the uh, if the movie was um, if they insisted on sh- shooting these scenes that were a- actually fictionalized um, it is a constant it's it seems as if it's a constant battle I don't understand why you um, why this why I agree with you I don't understand why this movie the why these movie makers would would um, try to exaggerate um, West it seems like he's a, as you suggest an interesting character as it is in real life um, and yeah I mean if yeah <laughs> I, I I sympathize with Jerry West in this situation um, yeah I mean if 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 somebody was was trying to sensationalize my life on screen for for uh to make to make this the story more sensational and maybe more watchable uh, at the at you know at, at the price of turning me into into something I'm not'd I'd, I'd be all over that so yeah I think um, good for him to fight it and uh I hope he I hope he wins it
0: and, of course, as Angel Hernandez's suit showed us, it, it's going to take years for that all to to flush itself out. And, of course, uh, the ratings are, are just climbing higher because there's so much interest in it. I have not watched it yet, I have to admit. I'm cur- I'm reading the back and forth. I'm fascinated by it. I'm troubled by it because Jeff Perlman is someone I believe we all know, and I, and I think Jeff's done a lot of good work for sure, in the sports biography area and reconstructing what dynasties were really like, whether it was the Mets, almost dynasty, or the Cowboys in the 90s or the Lakers. One of the things that made me think this series might be doomed from the start, though, um, so I remember hearing on one of Jeff's podcasts that he had been frustrated writing uh, that story about the Lakers or the book about the Lakers because Kareem refused to talk to him. Magic refused to talk to him and Pat Riley refused to talk to him. So, uh, and I don't remember if Jerry West gave him much time at all, but if you don't have Riley, Magic and Kareem and you're going to be leaning on Mark Landsberger uh, and Rambus, Rambis, uh, you're only going to get so much. And you're also going to be hearing it uh, several times several steps removed from the people that were the true superstars of it. There were others, but a lot of, I suppose, Norm Nixon was a huge uh, aspect of that book. But then I wonder, Tim, in terms of creative control, when a, when a movie is, owes itself so much to, as your, as your book did with Queen of Cotway, owes so much, if not everything, to uh, the portrayal and the research of the author, what is is there, a, is there a creative control that the author can really hold on to and have veto power, or are you just powerless once you turn it over? And, of course, Adam McKay wanted this one, and there was, I'm sure, a very big number that made it, like, okay, and then you cross your fingers.
1: I, w- I will tell you that I think it depends on the stature of the author. Um, I think, you know, for me, I had no, no creative con- control, except through, as I suggested, um, my proxy, which was, mm-hmm. uh, which was Robert Katende, who was part of the, part of the, uh, production team. And I think it was, they, they realized the production team realized that if, if, uh, Katende stormed off the set and said, this is, this is not the, the, the true story. That wasn't going to be good long-term for the movie. Um, so they understood that that might, that, that they better do what he, what he wanted them to do, or there was going to be a problem. Uh, but if I, th- I think if you, you know, some somebody like Michael Lewis probably has a bit more control uh, over, over, a, you know, the portrayal in the blind side or, uh, you know, Moneyball, something like that, where, where uh, I think, you know, I, I don't know for this for a fact, but I'm guessing that that um, he was far more directly involved with the, with the production as it was going along and was not have let them stray to stray on anything that he felt strongly about. Uh, the truth is, I don't think any movie is ever ever comes out uh, as a hundred percent true to this to to the uh, to to a book because there are just there are just transitions that are just in some cases just too hard to portray. So even in the Queen of Godway, there are a few moments where you're just like, yeah, that's pretty close to right, but not exactly. Yeah. Um, and. Yeah, you know, it's just difficult because you're boiling down. You're boiling down information that, if it were really fully, fully cast on screen. I mean, I always said there's you know maybe two, three percent of the of the information in the book is actually in the movie. So imagine trying to boil that boil a book down to two percent of itself and not not losing some of the context along the way. I mean, that's just going to happen. So, but you uh, know, mm-hmm.
2: well, as someone that's seen both. I thought the, and I was worried seeing the movie that they would take liberties with it, but I thought they seemed to stay very true to your book.
1: They did over. That's, uh, interesting overall, right, well, that's with, what I'm with, saying. With, Robert with helped unknown people,
2: happen. where they could have taken liberties, and no one would say like, "That's not what he was like." Like, who knows?
1: Right. But yeah. Right. That's what I'm saying. Robert. Robert was the key to that happening. He kept he kept the the uh, the ship on on course when otherwise it might not have been. Interesting. Um, and. I think that's, you know, that's why a lot of, mo- I, you know, I'm sure a lot of writers give up their creative control and then they watch watch the movie and think that's nothing that doesn't resemble my book in any way. Um, but I think for the most part, The Queen of Katwe is is true to the story. I mean, I'm I'm pleased with that, with with how much it is true to the story. Uh, but there's, st- even then, there are still moments where you're just like, hmm, not exactly, you know.
2: Well, one of the interesting things about the show, Winning Time, is that um, they, they take such chances with other people like Riley and magic and Kareem and all these other people. They really, they're not pulling punches. I mean, they're, they're pretty broad portrayals of what they did and, and how they did it. And it's interesting that there hasn't been a lot of fuss about that. So in some ways it's like the guys are like, okay, you know, well, okay, Kareem, has ripped
0: it. Kareem has yeah. ripped it uh, a yeah. couple different places,
2: but did he rip it for himself no. or for, Overall, right, and that's
0: overall, yeah. right,
2: and that's what I mean. Like, so it's interesting. So that's when you have reasonable portrayals of other people, and there are some interesting characters there, and then go way out on somebody else and somebody that's dead, like Paul Westhead, where it seems like, you know, that was one of the more outrageous. And Mike, you know, sort of confirmed this. Mike sure, the the portrayal of Westhead is is a little ridiculous too. Um, but he can't defend himself.
0: It's usually why they wait uh, until most mm-hmm. of the key. Players are, are gone, I suppose. Uh, whether it's uh, Junction Boys or or any of the sports uh, biopics, but a couple of things that too to point out. Rick Fox was creative controller. At least uh, he was. He was a Laker, not part of the Showtime Lakers. But Rick Fox uh, was around. Is is around it still? I believe uh, trying to help them get the basketball part right. Um, if not the '79 uh, and forward period right. Um, another thing is. Uh, Michael Orr, from The Blind Side, the hero of The Blind Side, apparently is not happy with the way he was portrayed, and in, uh, in Michael Lewis's book or in the film, um, and uh, and yet uh, no, it never did reach uh, uh, legal status. And I also think Art Howe was was I'm pretty sure uh, embarrassed by the way he was portrayed by the, uh, the great Philip Seymour Hoffman, but they took his very it was a caricature a lot of times that's what an actor will have to do that's what you take what you have to work with and then you expand on it and it becomes something unrecognizable apparently that's what's happening with Jerry West Jerry West has apparently been very outspoken throughout his career uh very open about the fact that he fights depression clinical depression and that's another element here that'll make him a sympathetic litigant if this goes all the way um because uh somehow that wasn't something that was portrayable enough for a series like this, and they had to turn it into something, uh, I suppose, bordering on alcoholism instead. And Jerry West apparently, and people say he did not drink. He did not tr- It's a very strange uh, leap to take. And then there's another aspect, I'll say, that I read about today that the fourth wall aspect that Adam McKay vehicles, and there have been some great ones, will often take, or Ferris Bueller did it, where they where the character turns and talks to you directly through the camera breaking the fourth wall uh and apparently uh that's what the jerry bus character has done now mentioning with jerry west suggesting that this was a real portrayal of jerry west what we're seeing is counter to how he was always his image was always crafted but um right and so that's that's what this is a fascinating case and jerry west has enough uh in the bank uh to and enough favors to call in for this thing to to continue amazing that hbo has doubled down maybe not amazing but H- hbo has chosen to double down on this jeff perlman's not distancing himself from it at all in fact he's uh, battling bob ryan and anybody else who wants to defend uh, jerry west's uh, character and reputation so uh, it's it's uh and all that does is make you more curious about it as soon as we're done i'm, I'm gonna go watch some of it So we're two-thirds of the way through uh, a three-point range that is long overdue. Uh, We have a Substack page that we invite you to check out. We have a Facebook page, and you can find this podcast. It starts off at anchor.fm. You can find it at Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Amazon, uh, podcasts, and uh, we thank you for finding us. The last uh, point we'd like to discuss, uh, mine is just... I guess I would term it a brain drain, uh, a, uh, a heft gap that will now show itself in college basketball and has kind of come rapidly over the last 13 months, over the last 13 months, college basketball has lost the following, uh, mega coaches, you know, about Mike Krzyzewski and that, uh, that, uh, retirement tour, of course, Roy Williams stepping aside a year ago. Um, Ben Howland was fired here recently, um, and Jay Wright, uh, surprisingly to some, but uh, I guess those closer to the program weren't shocked that he would step aside at age 60 from Villanova. Well, those four names I just mentioned own a total, a total of 29 Final Four trips and 10 national championships. Ben Howland, no national titles, but Kevin Love helped him get to three Final Fours. Um, If I told you that uh, I looked this up, I double-checked the math, but those four represent uh, at I guess 13 months ago there were 11 total coaches who had reached at least three Final Fours, and now it's down to seven. One of those is in the NBA. That's Billy Donovan. So in short. In the last 13 months, college basketball has lost, or basketball in general has lost, 43% of the Final Fours that were out there actively coaching, 45% of the national titles. That seems pretty significant. Jay Wright probably isn't going too far away. He might end up in the NBA. I kind of hope he doesn't. I'd rather see him replace Bill Raftery uh, on CBS. I think he'd be excellent there, or wherever he goes. But um, what do we make of that? And some people have suggested that, Some of this uh, brain drain is related to transfer portal, to name, image, and likeness, to the fact that you can't have the slow development, the slow cooking of a prospect the way Jay Wright became famous for at Villanova, uh, where you could, what you saw as a freshman wouldn't be the same by junior or senior year. Those guys, if they're not getting their minutes as a freshman, they're gone. Uh, That's the modern game. Up. What do we make of this trend?
1: Uh, I'll I'll start by saying that, that I think the most interesting part of the Jay Wright situation is, kind of working off of what you just said. Um, Jay Wright isn't the one and done guy. Uh, he isn't. He isn't the guy who's who's kind of had to suffer through through what Calipari and 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 Coach K did, where it was just kind of all right. I got these guys for a year. They all come in. They're all gone um and there isn't there is there isn't any way to develop them um if there was any program around the country that was old school it was Villanova and so of all the of all the the uh the coaches who who have suffered through what you know the worst of college basketball's evolution to the one and done era um you know Villanova has been almost completely immune to it and so, for them, uh, I think that's what that's what is what is really stunning. I think to most people is that um, Jay Wright is neither uh, has neither been part of the one and done era, nor is he sort of of that. You know, be, him being 10 to 15 years younger than Roy Williams or Coach K, um, you I, I didn't sense this this idea that uh, you know that he was sort of, um, you know, he would be the the older coach who was le- who who was less uh, willing to deal with uh, with name image and likeness or something like that. I mean, I do think that that was a piece of of what um, has has gotten a lot of these older coaches to retire. Uh, and I don't, you know, you just didn't sense that that was something that that uh, Jay Ray was going to have to deal with as much as some of these other coaches because he just wasn't he wasn't going to be bringing in for the most part, these, uh, top, t- top 10, top 15 recruits. Um, he is still doing it, you know, he was, he was still doing it this year with a, with a largely, uh, ex- older experience group. And you figure that that was the model that he was going to have going forward. So, uh, you would thought you would have thought of anybody was, was able to kind of stiff arm all of this, you know, all of this, uh, new, new world. Um, college basketball, uh, it was going to be him. So, so I guess that's to me that was what that's that's why that came as 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 a bit of a stunner, um, and it, yeah, it really does. It really it really makes you wonder. You know that they were sort of a, they were one of the dinosaurs, and you know what great program now. Um, assuming Kansas is going to go is going to vacate their championship any day now, and and Bill Self will will be. Kick to the curb uh then what you know who's left uh who's left to carry this on I mean I guess all we've got left is is 112 year old Jim beheim
2: <laughs> well I think it's it's just more of a coincidence honestly you know I think these coaches come and go and it happens I mean there's still a lot of coaches out there that have been coaching for a long time and will be coaching for a long time um let well, let me, stop you, let me
0: stop you real quick there just because we mentioned beheim we're also no, we're not too far away from Patino being at the end of the line. It uh, doesn't look like he's going to get back to the major level. Uh, Izzo has to be near the end. Calipari, it seems to be a year-to-year proposition now. These are other guys that are on that have a championship, three or more Final Fours. And like Tim mentioned, Bill Self uh, on borrowed time, perhaps. We we're not too far away. That's the list, and then Billy Donovan. From, ha- from having all 11 of those guys with three or more Final Fours 13 months ago being off the stage. I would say we're within three years max of all of them being off the stage.
2: Yeah, I three still years. think it's more of a trend. I I mean, I, I, I guess if you're going to read into something, it would almost be the opposite thought, like in a funny way, um, you know, like... Wright's way of uh, going against the um one and dones was to have guys that were there for four, five, six years. Um, well now with the NIL as we see with North Carolina bringing everybody back, maybe he's like, "Oh no. You know, I could beat them when they were just one and done. Now they're two, three, four and done and, they're, and they're also top recruits, but I don't really think that's true. Um I I just think it's it's something of coincidence, but I also am There's just no way that guy's done coaching. He's just too young, too good. too. It's too much, it seems to me, his identity. I'd be just shocked if if he really was just, you know, working with the university in some other capacity for...
0: Well, it's it's Team USA. He's going to be the Olympic coach. Any
2: great period of time.
0: Looks like he'll be the Olympic coach. He was assistant to Popovich previously. So he'll have that. I hope he doesn't just go take all the Sixers or Knicks money.
1: My sources tell me that he didn't didn't enjoy coaching the uh, does not enjoy coaching pros.
0: Ah, mm-hmm. all right, all right. Well then, uh, perhaps we'll have him uh, on CBS.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a possibility. <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't uh, realize you were so down on Bill Raftery.
0: Oh, I've said uh, you go back a year, run the tape back. I call I was calling for his for his retirement a year ago. I've enjoyed the act all these decades, but now I cringe. I just I I was come as come on. As, I was cringing. I feel, so, I feel so sad that he's a man who knows plenty of basketball is reduced to basically. <laughs> you're talking about Jerry West portrayal. We have to wrap it up here in a minute or two. But uh, Bill Raftery, the, he's just there for people to make jokes about uh, you know, how Lady was at the bar the previous night. And, and he's got, if he doesn't get onions and kiss and man to man. Then what value is he allowed to bring anymore? Uh, It's sad. He comes up with
2: one original funny line every broadcast. I don't know about that. I really don't. And I think he's a good argument for the three-person booth because, you know, he might not be, you know, able to carry the two-person booth anymore. But I think it's great when he's chiming in in his way. I've never been bothered by one of his broadcasts.
0: Wow, well, Grant Hill makes it a two-person booth already because he's (laughs) providing nothing. Now
1: that that is that is the. The guy of that three-man booth, that's the guy who needs to go. It's going to be Jim Nance and Jay Wright
0: by themselves, CBS, the number one team next year. Uh, I think we have to leave it right here. We thank you for finding us. This has been Three Point Range for Kimball Crosley and Tim Crothers. This is Mike Berardino. We'll see you next time.